Welcome back to the Pioneer Podcast. We're super excited to be here today with a dear friend, Jillian Gaeta, who started an incredible company with two of her friends called Roots to Revolution. And when we think about pioneers um, that we want to talk to and learn from on the podcast, we think of the definition of pioneer as someone who builds or creates something new and creates a path for others to follow. And the core mission of Rooster Revolution is so powerful because it's all about reteaching American history to adults so that we get the real story this time. And I'm just so thrilled to have Jillian here to learn about her journey, what she's up to, and how we can learn from her today. Thanks, Sarah. I'm so happy to be here with you all and appreciate, you know, getting to talk today. So Jill, tell us a little bit about your journey to start Roots to Revolution and, and the mission of what you all are trying to accomplish. Yeah, so when Roots to Revolution had started in 2020, I had been a history teacher for middle school and high school students for about 14 years. And what we were seeing, my friends Kim and Kat and I, were a lot of people were coming to us after George Floyd was murdered and we're asking, what do we do about this? And we don't understand how America even got to this place in the first place. I had posted a stack of books about American history on my Instagram, and I said, you should read all these books. And actually, your cousin messaged me and said, Jillian, I'm not going to read all those books. And I said to her, well, if I taught a class and I kind of gave you the cliff notes, would you take the class? And she said, oh, absolutely, I would take the class, but I'm not going to get through all those books. And she was one of the first people to sign up for my class. We set out a Google form, you know, for people to join, and we ended up getting an overwhelming response. About, you know, 350 people, you know, signed up immediately to take this class. Class, which was marketed as like the history of systemic racism in America and all the things that you didn't learn in high school. And I think that, you know, even my students prompted me in certain ways because I would talk to them a lot about voting and rights and all these things. And I give them voter registration forms when they turned 18, but they would often say to me like, well, we're not the ones who get to vote yet. And are you talking to the adults about this? Like, who, what are they doing? And I think, you know, it really made me think that, you know, we're the ones who are creating the problems and we're the ones who are in power and we have to also, you know, not just teach the kids, but re-educate ourselves. And, you know, on a much lighter note, you know, I taught AP US history and had really smart kids, but, you know, sometimes a kid comes in and they're like upset about their relationships and they're upset about their friends and like, they're not paying attention to what Reaganomics was. <laughs> and so it's like when you're 16 and that's your only history class, right? Like you need to relearn it later. Um, and so I think, you know, that was a big reason why, um, we wanted to help people, you know, understand the history. I love it. I know I sat in and took that very first <laughs> class that you offered. And I tell people all the time, actually, we were talking about it with the Omni team just a few weeks ago about just how systemic some of these concepts are. They're even in our language and we don't realize it. And I remember sitting in one of the virtual courses and learning that grandfather, that term of being grandfathered in has a racial undertone. And I was like, I will never use that again. And I wouldn't ever have known that if not for yeah, your course. Yeah, because the Jim Crow era, they had they created grandfather clauses and you can only vote if your grandfather could vote. Well, if you were enslaved, your grandfather couldn't vote. And so that was one of the ways they, you know, kept voter suppression alive. And so, you know, so much of the, the terms that we use today definitely are, you know, connected to these examples of racism. And, you know, that time period in history actually was an education project did a report Reconstruction is the least taught time period in American history across the country because it's all about how black people rose to power, you know, how hundreds of black men ran for office after they were given the right to vote and all the success that was created during that time. It was a very short period of time. You know, that's why it's often suppressed. That story isn't told because if we knew more of that history, we'd have more examples today. And I think that 
it's deliberate that a lot of that is left out. I do love this country and I think that we can make it a better place. And I'm an idealist at heart and I believe that anyone can be better. You've shared with me before, I also didn't know that almost every other curriculum is set. Like, you know what you're going to teach second graders about math, mm -hmm. but that's not true about history. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, history is the only course across the country that there's no national standards for. And that is because the way we teach history can be very political. If you teach history the way I teach history, you're going to be mad at all the politicians. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because, you know, the Republican Party has often deliberately upheld white supremacy and the Democratic Party has often compromised with them. So an example of that is the Republicans didn't want the New Deal passed, which was after the Great Depression. And so in order for FDR to get the New Deal passed, he had to leave sharecroppers and domestic workers out of the Social Security program. Well, who were the sharecroppers and the domestic workers were the black women and the black men. And so everyone qualified for Social Security except for people who held those jobs. And so the New Deal didn't go far enough and the NAACP criticized it for not helping enough black people. And that's an example of how I say, if you learn history in a deeper way with a lens focusing on black Americans, you'll often be angry at all the politicians. And so politicians have a vested interest in us not learning that <laughs> because both of them will have to work harder. Both the Republicans and the Democrats will have to work harder. States, as we're seeing across the country, right, there's been 42 proposed pieces of legislation to um, censor black history and LGBTQ history. 17 states have successfully gotten those bans on the table. It's because if you learn history, you know, in a certain way, you're going to be more active in your community. You're going to hold people accountable and we're going to have to make change. And if it wasn't so important, they wouldn't be working so hard right. to suppress it. What has been for you the most impactful part of the program? So either like feedback that you've gotten from folks that has, you know, made you light up or <laughs> what have what have you learned through the process of, of rolling it out? I think what's been Amazing to me is just seeing people in my courses from across the country have taught people now in 26 different states just change and evolve over a short period of time. That is just incredible to me. And then seeing the things that they've done out in their communities as a result. So I had one man take my course and then he decided to go to Michigan for three weeks and be a poll worker. And then I had another woman who was like 65 in the class and she lives in New Jersey and she started a Black Lives Matter group in her community with other women. And then they invited me back to talk about housing segregation. I've worked with businesses and people have said, you've changed the way I talk to my clients about the way they're handling race issues and diversity issues. And so we don't know how our small steps can change the world. And I really do believe that all those small steps can change the world. And so it's really beautiful to hear people share those stories back with me and grow and just be making differences in, in small ways in every aspects of their lives. So can we just pause and celebrate the influence <laughs> that you had over, I mean, just, you, you, I, I know it goes beyond just those two people, but just those two examples yeah. are massive yeah. impacts on communities beyond just those two people. So yeah. that's amazing. And that's Thank you. Something yeah. to celebrate. For sure. <laughs> And I think what, what I've loved about all the Rooster Revolution courses I've taken is that they're provocative. You know, there's one that the subject is, the title of that course is Dangerous White Women. <laughs> and so that could be a scary thing to sign up to as a white woman. Um, but what I love about them is exactly what you just said, that it's not about shaming us for what we haven't done or what we didn't know, yep. but giving the information and then compelling people to act. Because once you have that information, it's impossible not to feel compelled to do yeah. something. Just a little, like a warning here, I'm going to talk a little bit about some heavy stuff, but uh, I taught a class to just only men, and I think that was one of my favorite classes, because it was like mostly white men in this class, and 
A lot of them ended up signing up right after the January 6th insurrection. They were terrified and they were horrified and they like wanted to talk in the class. And one of the first questions I asked them was to, in their action plans, everybody does like a action plan afterwards, to think about where they saw like rape culture in their lives. When we came back to class and one of the guys was just like, I have no idea what that means. And I had to like pause and like really think about it. And I, you know, I explained it. And by the end of that class though, um, the same man was like, I cannot believe that prisons and schools do not give out free tampons and free <laughs> menstrual products, and we have to do more about this, and I am calling the prison this week in California to talk about that, and I think, like, you know, that's what's been inspiring to me about these courses, is, like, when you, you create a space for people without shame and without fear and without guilt to talk um, and, and focus on love and empathy and connection, that's how you know, you build real change, right? And I think a lot of the culture that we're seeing right now, you know, around conversations about race and gender is, is very hateful and it's very polarized. And we're not going to get anywhere if that's the way we're talking to people. There's this analogy that this professor at Penn says, which is that, like, white people talking about race with black people is, is like putting kids who are taking algebra into a calculus class. Like, they're behind. We're behind because we don't talk about race all the time. And I feel like, you know, my role... In this, and a lot of the adults who take my class are white, and I think that my role is to help white people catch up, mm -hmm. to get more fluent in talking about race, to be able then to help their black friends, their black loved ones, and advance equity in their own spaces that they're in. And I think that's kind of where you know I found my niche: how to take this enormous problem of systemic racism and you know try to do a little bit to chip away at it and not be a burden on those loved ones exactly. who are already. <laughs> exhausted because right. they're at the head of the class they've been dealing with this not just the what the stories but also living yep. in this environment of incredibly systemic racism and like they don't want to have to teach this guy what rape culture is <laughs> <laughs> I don't want it either so I'm glad you're doing it <laughs> Somebody has to, so thank you. <laughs> thank you for that, too. <laughs> you know, you've had such an influence both on Sarah and myself because of your course and, and your pioneering uh, spirit. But so we have a pretty a pretty hefty diversity goal this year uh, specific to new hires. So I wanted to ask Sarah about like the inspiration for that and what we're trying to achieve and how we're going about achieving it. Yeah, and Joel and I have already talked about this and how we can get better and achieve this goal. But basically, you know, when we think about the consulting industry to begin with, it is not very diverse. Mm -hmm. And as we're building and growing a company that we want to be inclusive and representative of all different perspectives, backgrounds, voices, and also create opportunity for people mm -hmm. that didn't naturally have the space to be at yep. the table. I think we've been really successful at doing that for women as our all women-led leadership team, but there is a gap for us mm -hmm. in racial diversity specifically. And so we sat down as a leadership team to plan for 2023 and said, that needs to be a goal. We yeah. have to put that on paper. It's a bold goal that half of the people we would hire this year would represent specifically racial diversity because mm -hmm. we have been successful in the other areas. And I, even as we said it, the four of us in a strategic planning meeting, we were like, can we even put that on paper? Like, mm -hmm. it, legally, can we say that? Mm -hmm. For me, it was critically important that we did, even though it was uncomfortable and yeah. it felt like the skunk on the table that we had to talk through because it's harder and harder to build back later. Yep. And we needed to be really purposeful and thoughtful about the fact that the funnel at the top is already not diverse. So we yep. had to be extra 
focused on closing that gap. I know we've talked about trying yeah. to achieve that, but it's something that, you know, is scary to say and put out there. But when I look at our team on our website, I love all the people that are here, but they are predominantly white. Yep. And and that is a major challenge for us. Yeah. Especially as we say in our story, you know, that diversity matters to us. And as a women-led business, it's part of our foundation. Different backgrounds, skill sets, and mindsets are what make us so successful. And we were saying, like, how can we say that if then somebody goes to our website and it's like, oh, all these white people are talking about how diversity is so important to them. So we really do want to put our money where our mouth is this year. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's like a good thing that a lot of companies and people are thinking about this. And it's just, you know, it's a result of so much of what is happening. If you're not friends with people who look different than you, then how are you going to get them in your company, right? Your friends of friends are going to have the same people join, right? So we have to think differently about how we recruit. We also have to think differently about skill sets and why people maybe come to the table, right? So if I'm thinking about some of my students who were low income, they weren't doing a ton of after school activities because they were helping their parents pay rent. Is it on a college application? Are we valuing someone's job at Models as equally as we're valuing the captain of the track team because my students were not doing those things because they didn't want to, right? But they were doing it because they had to do other things. That's leadership, right? And that's also that's we're building a lot of skills. So how are we looking at people's resumes and and thinking about them and what they can you know bring to the table? Especially you all focusing a lot more on the cannabis industry, right? Black activists are talking about it as green cotton, right? That white people are um, benefiting now off this billion-dollar industry that black people bore the brunt of in the war on drugs. And so I think it's even, you know, more imperative for you all as you're thinking about your company and growing, right? Like, I mean, we need to we need to give back to people who suffered from this. You know, and I think that that's important that you're thinking about that. Yeah, and for us, it's not just the people we hire. We're also thinking about the vendors that we use. Yeah. We, as we host company events, we're specifically choosing women or minority-owned small businesses. What's been interesting is we have started working with a recruiting firm to help us close mm-hmm. this gap because we know our network are limited. Um, And one of the things that they raised to me was when you talk about being a young company and how that can be so exciting and it's a startup and we're growing, um, a lot of the underprivileged communities, especially in America, are taught, like, you need to get a job that's reliable. Go work at the post office because you can get a pension. As someone who did not grow up in a very strong financial position, I was like, that's that's true. And I don't know how I missed that. So it's been really insightful and helpful to have that kind of feedback and guidance and, you know, having you here today to talk to the broader team about cannabis and social justice. We also have a DEI training coming up on how do we support the people once we bring them in, when we have Mm -hmm. one Asian American woman, well, Mm -hmm. that's a heavy burden for her to carry. Mm -hmm. So how do we make sure the environments that we're creating are not just welcoming, but once you're here, that that's an inclusive place. And to your point, we're doing it for them so that they're not doing it for us. We are yes. creating it for them before they even get here. Right. Right. I think that's really important. Yeah, and I think that's something that companies struggle with, too. Like, if people are able to get them in the door, retention is an issue. Mm-hmm. And so then how do you create an environment that's sustainable? And I think showing that you're a company that's doing other things that are connected to this is going to draw people in, right? And I think that that's really important that you're thinking about, you know, what does it mean to work for a startup? That's, that is definitely scary for someone who's the first one in their family to graduate from college. They don't have someone to fall back on. And so I think it's important you're thinking about those things. 
things. One of the biggest things, I've said this before, that I've taken away from entering into this cannabis industry is the, the it's a totally different feeling of how can I help you? So often, especially like in our, our careers in consulting and business development and that's in the type of world that we live in, it's how can you help me? Mm-hmm. And it has been so refreshing and inspiring to go to places that are uh, creating space for cannabis professionals to find other people to network with that say, how can I help you? Yeah. We've had feedback from friends of ours that have helped us with our story and our approach within within cannabis to say, be careful who you align yourself with. Mm-hmm. Because what you were saying before is like, all these white people are coming into the industry and, and there's a lot of investors, white investors that are pumping money into the industry so that they can get the gains. And like lobbying the politicians to not allow a lower barrier of entry mm-hmm. into, the, into the system. Right, right. Which is exactly what we, we need to do the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the, the advice was just be aware of who you're partnering with, who yeah. you're surrounding yourself with, because it will impact your reputation and, and could very quickly take you in a negative turn. Yeah. It's been very interesting for me to go from what my experience has been in my career, not just in consulting, but in my career to this world where they want to help, they want to make introductions, they want to share notes. And it's amazing. And I think we, our social impact uh, journey that Haley has taken us on has been incredible first steps of figuring out who we want to be and how we want to yeah. be known for what we're doing, both as just general consultants, but also for the cannabis industry. Yeah. With anything, right? You have to like move slower. And just like deliberately, really, deliberately yeah. right? And it's like that's kind of, when there's so much money involved and there's so much opportunity, like that's really hard to do. Mm-hmm. But you have to do all your research. White people create a white supremacy, so white people need to dismantle white supremacy. And so, like, we have to have these conversations and we need to think about it that way. And it's hard because you're like at Thanksgiving and you're just like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> they said this racist thing and I really don't want to deal with it, right? But it's like, yeah, you, you got to deal with it because just I really do believe that every time you you stop someone from saying those things, it's a small puncture. It's, and it may not change their whole worldview, but it's a puncture in their worldview. One of my favorite students, his name was Elijah. And we were talking about like, what do white people, sometimes white people say racist things. And he said to me, well, what do you say when they say racist things around you? And this was like in 2012. And I wasn't really in the practice of that puncturing. I wasn't having those hard conversations. And I was like, oh my goodness, I don't say anything. (laughs) And now I tell people that like one of my norms for my life is I always pretend Elijah's in the room. And that if... I was in the room and someone said something and Elijah was sitting right next to me. Would he be happy with what I said? Would he say, oh yeah, Miss Gata was brave and actually disrupted this conversation or Miss Gata was a coward and she didn't stop it. And that helps me. I also believe too that it's never too late, especially when you have relationships with people, to go back and say that thing, right? To say, oh, a few days ago you said this to me and I was upset. Can we talk about it again? That's so much of what you're doing with Roots Revolution is making sure that message is getting across the people who are continuing to persist and allow this system to go on. There is a role we all have to play in having the uncomfortable conversation, in understanding the different viewpoints. A few weeks ago at South by Southwest, and there was a really interesting panel that was all about curiosity and how to ask better questions. Mm-hmm. One of the speakers, he said, we often make people dig in more when we go in with an attack. How could you not know mm-hmm. what that thing is? And I can't mm-hmm. believe you said that. And she said, instead, we need to use the heat in that conversation to cook up 
a conversation versus burn the relationship. Oh, I love that. And I loved the analogy and then yeah. she gave the example of how she was an immigrant, her parents were immigrants from Mexico, and that they voted for Trump in the first election. And she was mortified and was like constantly lecturing them about it mm-hmm. and realized it wasn't getting anywhere. Right. And so instead thought about how she could ask a more meaningful question to say, like, help me understand why you voted that way. What about those policies or plans resonated with you? And she, her description was like, that actually created place for them to talk about those things and what was on her parents' mind and then gave her the opportunity to point them in the right direction for the actual facts versus (laughs) the different sources that maybe didn't have the right facts. But that I loved the analogy of like, use the heat. It will be uncomfortable. There is friction there, especially when it's a family member or a close friend, but you can use it in the right way. You know, we have in this country a real discomfort around talking about politics, is which which is what maintains white supremacy. And even us just having this conversation is radical in and of itself. We have to remember that, honestly, more of us are on the side of justice than not. I think that there's always an opportunity for people to change. I also think that when it comes to, like, electoral politics, we just need to get our people out to vote. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. It, it, yeah, there's more of us. There are way more people that fall yeah. in the more moderate space. What we're really doing is spending so much energy fighting against the extreme. Mm-hmm. And the extreme minority has a chokehold on uh, messaging yep. and influence yeah. that we have to battle against. And I think the more people that can get into that battle, the better off. The majority of us that live in the middle will be. Yeah. Well, you also can have an extreme chokehold on messaging and marketing when you're not legislating. Yes. So <laughs> you're not actually doing the job of governing and leading, which they're not, right? They're right. not solving any real problems, no. right? They're scapegoating queer people in America, scapegoating immigrants, right? Scapegoating black people, right? And they're not legislating anything. Most of these policies that billionaires are purporting are not helping the lower working white class, mm-hmm. right? But they use white supremacy as a tool, right? So you're not as bad as those those black people, right? And then mm-hmm. people know that there's a caste system in America. They know there's a hierarchy and they don't want to be at the bottom. And I think that that's what they're really baiting people with. It's a huge thing that we need to talk about. So Jill, I am dying to know <laughs> your take on the phrase I hate most in the world, which is, oh, I'm fiscally conservative and socially liberal, because that means shit to me. (laughs) Where money goes is where the decisions happen. That is a fake bravado that people put on to say, oh, yeah, I don't give a shit about all these. Right. I mean, like, it's like, oh, yeah, I support um, social programs. I just won't pay for them. Yeah, so you're not supporting supporting social programs, right? Um, And I think that, you know, what's interesting about America... You know, Thomas Jefferson and the founding fathers created this idea about equality. And they didn't mean it for everybody, (laughs) but they wrote it down. (laughs) Because they wrote it down, we can work towards that vision, right? And we can actually try to make that true. And that is what makes America unique. Because other places didn't write it down, right? Other places said, no, we're not even going to try that crazy thing about equality. Um, But we said we're going to try it. And I think that that's what we always have to strive for. What I love about everything that Ruth's Revolution does, but especially you as a person, is that there there is this struggle, there is this difficulty, this friction that we live in, this environment that isn't always great. But there's hope. Mm -hmm. And it happens in little increments. It happens in little interactions. I think it was Cory Booker, who who I adore, because he's helped my cousin in her journey for with her husband, who is an immigrant. Um, and he talked about how we need to think about nobody wants to do the dishes, but everybody wants to own a company and rule the world. <laughs> and it's like the first step is helping do the dishes at home. Like what is the impact you have in your local day-to-day interactions and community that then have? 
that bigger impact. And I yeah. think that's so much of what you all are up to at Rooster Revolution. That's so inspiring. Yeah, it's, it's actually funny. So my mom was like always afraid of me like going out in the world and being an activist. And you making me think when I was, I told her, I was like, oh, mom, I think I want to join the Peace Corps. She was like, you don't even do the dishes. <laughs> You're going to go save a village. Because how do you help your mother first and load the dishwasher? Small <laughs> so She would have agreed with that. Cory Booker. <laughs> She and I would have high five. That one. <laughs> I think, you know, yeah, Brian Stevenson, uh, you know, who wrote Just Mercy and, and opened up the Equal Justice Initiative and the Legacy Museum in um, Alabama. I love a quote that he says, which is that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. Mm-hmm. And that as soon as we lose hope, we lose the, the end game. We are creating a world that doesn't exist and that's harder, right? It's easier to tell people like, fear this, fear that. It's harder to say, well, I wanna envision a world without prisons. Well, no one knows what that looks like. It's possible, but I have to explain to people and, and, and dream up what that might look like. And that's really harder to get people on your side. And so you can't lose hope. <laughs> the other thing that's incredibly unique about America is our special interest groups and the way that money talks in mm-hmm. our country. How do you kind of battle against or compete against the money movement and the influence that those with it have? There's an unspoken fourth branch of the American government, and that's the people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the preamble of the Constitution, it says, we the people, right? And we are the ones that, you know, democracy is a relationship. Democracy is not something that's stagnant. It is a relationship that we hold people accountable for, um, and we have to hold our officials accountable for. I have Chuck Schumer, Kirsten Gillibrand, Dan Goldman's phone numbers and my contacts and my phone. <laughs> and when I get annoyed, I call them up. <laughs> and, you know, the yes, the NRA has a ton of money. The NRA has a lot of people that actually call every time there is a shooting and say they don't want gun rights taken away. It's not just the money. It's the people who's, who vote and speak. And, and we all, and we, that we do have that, right? We don't have, maybe we don't have money, but we do have that. And I had a friend who worked in Congress and he was that person that answered the calls. And what they do is they keep a a spreadsheet and they count how many times someone calls. And if they get 300 calls about gun reform, then that's what they bring to the Senator. And it's not just about like the, it's not just about the donations. And I think that more and more people are seeing the dark side of the money. One of the biggest ways that history is told that perpetuates a myth. And I use Martin Luther King as the example, right? Dr. King was a phenomenal man, but Dr. King was one of thousands of people, right? Rosa Parks was one of thousands of people. The Montgomery bus boycotts were not one day. They were a year and a half. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it's and it's people carpooling so that black people didn't need to use the buses. That's how they got the bus system integrated. And what we do when we whitewash the narrative is we say there was one hero. Well, when there's one hero and when there's a messiah, well, what do I think? I got to wait. I got to wait for my hero to show up. I'm not Dr. King. No. But I can be that one person that drives someone in the carpool while we're boycotting the buses. I can do that. We'll never know those people's names. Right? Mm-hmm. But those are the people that have changed America. It's the small actions every day. It's not the heroes. And, you know, we have to go beyond the heroes and find that ability within ourselves. Protests, like the peaceful protests, or even if you think about corporations pulling out of different states who are not holding certain events in states. It all ends up impacting somebody's pocketbook, which mm-hmm. is eventually what ends up, you know, moving the needle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I got out of what you were saying is like, we need to find opportunities to impact the money mm-hmm. and follow the money. And yeah. that is how 
ultimately we get to the place that we want to be. And being brave, like, you know, I think after the insurrection, you know, there were a lot of companies that had donated to the politicians that supported it. Like, Mm -hmm. what if someone at every one of those companies had said, hey, like, we donate to them. I don't think we should be donating to them. Right. And there's a list. There's information out there. So it's like we have to people in the room that need to be the ones that say, we need to stop supporting these politicians or donating to these types of politicians or elections or candidates. It's that the, somebody needs to be speaking up in a room that is representing more than just the money. That's why I still go back to like getting, you know, white people, I use this analogy of getting more fluent in speaking about race, right? Like when you're learning a foreign language, the only way you learn a foreign language is by practicing speaking it to mm-hmm. someone else. And so it's like white people don't have fluency in speaking about race. And the more we gain that fluency, the easier it is to be in that room and speak up. And then you'll see it, like, because I've done it in rooms before where I'll like speak up and then the room opens up, you know, and everyone jumps in and right. it just takes. And I've also been on the other end where like someone else said it. And then I was like, all right, great. Now I come <laughs> yeah, right. it's like, right. You have to like be, you know, like sometimes it just takes that one person mm-hmm. to just start the conversation. You know, the, the hero in that moment. Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. One of the things I learned in, in your class, which everybody should take because it not only gives you the fluency, but the safe space to practice and say the things that are uncomfortable and, and kind of be the hero and say like, I don't know. I don't know how I would have handled that when, you know, my uncle said this thing at Thanksgiving. Someone had shared an app that's called Five Calls, the number five and the word C-A-L-L-S mm-hmm. yep. that I use all the time. And basically the app, you open it up, you put in your zip code and there is a list of topics yeah. and you can choose the one you're passionate about. So let's say... You know, for me, maybe it's Roe versus Wade being overturned. When you click on that, it literally gives you a script and your representative's phone numbers. So you can just click the phone number, it dials it, and you can read that script word for word, but now it counts. Now it counts in that spreadsheet. Someone called about that thing, and they talk about just make five calls. And it will, like, tracks how many did you make, where did you call, and it's, it's like, the easy button to help build that fluency and feel like you're taking that moment to step up, be the voice whether the funds are there or not, at least the voice is being counted. Yeah. yeah. A lot of researchers have done work on like um, the tenets of white supremacy culture. And one of them is perfectionism. And I, mm-hmm. I think about that a lot with like sometimes worrying about like, what am I going to say when I call? Just call and say you care about the issue, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't need to be perfect. Like you don't need to know like SB112. Like with their perfectionism, they worry like, do I, do I need to know that? We shouldn't let that be what stops us from calling, right? This perfectionism that like we're not going to get it right. I don't know if we had talked about this at the top, but so I've had the pleasure of knowing you for many, many years. <laughs> Katie always talks about how politicians are like her celebrities. <laughs> <laughs> You haven't noticed she's even wearing her RBG earrings today. I appreciate even the two of you talking about like the money and chasing those things down because I think a lot of people don't even have that level of awareness because you don't see the impact immediately. Sometimes it's years down the line. Yeah, yeah. I'm much more cynical about um, politics. I think uh, so. I did intern for Biden's office. I'm Uh a Delawarean. I grew up in Delaware, Uh and everybody's always like, "Do you know Joe Biden?" And the answer is yes. Um, And I interned for him when I was in college. It was a summer internship. I was fortunate enough that my cousin worked there and lived there. So I lived with her and I was all state and I would get certifications from just signed by Joe Biden. He was like, Joe Biden knows I made first team all state. (laughs) And then I go and I intern at his office and they're like, all right, here's a machine and it has a pen and it just signs for him. So just stick it under there and it signs it. And I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) You get so disillusioned. (laughs) He doesn't sign these himself? And they're like, 
what? And I'm like, okay, all right. I have some things to learn. Yeah. I was with like a couple other interns that were definitely like their parents had money and they, you know, like got them an internship. And so they were like, I just want to sit in the back and like seal envelopes and like stick yeah. a piece of paper under this signing thing that ruined <laughs> my life. And I was, they said, well, somebody can work in the legislative office. And I was like, boom, I want to do that. Yeah. Right? So I ended up being able to be with the people that answer the phone and uh, take the notes and understand what the constituents want. Yeah. Now, granted, he was like the longest serving senator of all time. Right, they rarely right. ever had anybody run against him in Delaware. Delaware is a fairly blue state. Yeah. Most of the policy that they were researching and putting in front of him were, you know, blue-leaning uh, mm -hmm. policies mm -hmm. and, and approaches. So, you know, even if you're calling in a red state after there's a shooting, it's going to be geographically contained. Yeah. But there is, you know, there's a, a multitude of ways we can influence. But to me, it's ultimately like, how do you influence somebody out of money? Because that's when they're going to take action. The 27th Amendment to the Constitution is about regulating the amount of pay that Congress gets. And it was the amendment that took the longest to ratify. Mm -hmm. It's like the people who are making the laws don't necessarily want to, like, reform campaign finance law <laughs> if they're going to, like, make, or, you know, uh, or term limits. <laughs> right, right, or term limits, or right. Or special interest gonna, payments. So I get right. paid $300,000 to speak for 10 minutes at this event. Exactly, right? Like, that's going to not be in their best interest. <laughs> but, you know, there there is, like, I think... Um, the Working Families Party is an amazing group of people who are like supporting progressive candidates and there are a lot of those people who have committed to saying I'm not going to take big money and it's, it's way harder mm -hmm. um, it's a lot more work but they have won you know they have won campaigns and I think that like you know we get those people into office you know then we can you know get there one woman she's a city councilwoman in the Bronx she, I was talking to her and I had said to her you know kind of like feeling this hopelessness and she said to me well we've never had a government where it was equitable and it was diverse and you know so we don't know how it works yet mm -hmm. so we have to keep trying and we can't say it's never going to work because we've never seen it mm -hmm. um and it like really stuck out to me right like we don't know what that looks like yet because we haven't had it and we haven't achieved it and so i think we need to keep you know thinking about how to get there yeah i'd even say possible. you know one of the one of the pages in the republican playbook right now is local elections school yeah. boards yep. treasurers yep. election oversight yep. Uh, and so that's the other thing I would want people to be aware of, that there's yes. a lot of influence at that local level because people vote less in yep. local state elections than they do on, in the presidential election. There's a lot to learn from the Republican Party about movements. Mm -hmm. The work to overturn Roe started as soon as Roe, you know, was allowed to be a law, and right? Appointed and, you judges. Know, right? And we have to recognize, too, that every single office matters. Right. I think Democrats tend to focus a lot on the federal level mm -hmm. when, you know, getting back to like cannabis, most people are not incarcerated because of in federal prison for cannabis. So mm -hmm. who has to make the clemency? It's the governors. Right. And then like, you know, who is in the assembly? A lot of people don't know their state assembly person mm -hmm. or or their state senator. You know, I think about like Barack Obama. Where did he start? The state house, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like we have to build a bench. Where did de Blasio, Bill de Blasio, our former mayor of New York, started as a city council person, right? We have to build the bench, right? And yep. cultivate people at every level. To kind of bring it to a conclusion of how we as individuals can influence, I think there are small and big things, but at the end of the day, what I like to say is there are loud voices and quiet storms, mm -hmm. and we have to align ourselves with one or both mm -hmm. and decide how we're going to make the change. I love that. The thing I always tell people is like finding your lane in activism, finding something that brings you joy, you know, because that's, that is sustainable. Right. And so, you know, unfortunately, because racism is in every place, <laughs> you can, you can be an activist in whatever space 
you're in, right? So being the journalist or being the podcaster or, you know, being the artist, you know, I think about like what Ava DuVernay has done for people understanding mass incarceration through her, her films, right? Like she's not a politician, right? And so sometimes people associate these things just with politics. And we did talk a lot about politics. And that's <laughs> right. super, super important as a baseline for everyone to participate in. But there are so many different ways to make change. And you have to do it in a way that brings you joy because that's what's going to keep you in it for your life. I think what I'm going to take away from it, you know, we started by talking about the definition of a pioneer, someone who builds or creates something new and creates a path for others to follow. I mean, so obvious what you all are doing at Roots to Revolution is core to that definition. But what really stood out to me is that we all have to have a role and hope and joy in this and be our own pioneers to make that change. How are you being that individual pioneer hero for the community you're already in locally so that that hope can persist? Yeah, and I think also, like, you know, my favorite pioneer that I learned about in adulthood is Pauli Murray. And Pauli Murray wrote their senior thesis about how to desegregate schools at Howard that Thurgood Marshall used to argue Brown versus Board. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg used Pauli's legal work to argue for the 14th Amendment. And Pauli's work should be a household name, and it's not. You know, activists give us the roadmaps for the future, and we need to also, like, seek out these stories that we haven't heard of people who may change and give us the path forward. I've learned so much from you every time I talk to you. <laughs> Certainly we learned a lot today. I hope everyone signs up for a Roots to Revolution course Thank to you. take the time to learn from you, but also from this history that many of us did not learn. So I hope people tune in, Thank not you. just this episode, but to all the Roots to Revolution courses, because it's really magical, impactful work that you all are yeah, doing. Yeah, we're doing some classes starting in Pride Month on LGBTQ history, because that has been one of the biggest places of censorship. So excited to start Thanks. that. And uh, yeah, Hope to see people there. Awesome. Thank you so much for yeah, everything, Thanks for Jill. fighting the good fight, Jill. <laughs> Thank you for having me.